we always start by remembering what T.S. Eliot said in Little Gidding, which is the end of all our exploring is to arrive at where we started and know the place for the first time, which means we should start where we want to end up, which is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because it is into that great Trinitarian mystery that Christ came to call us. Now, just a little review for those who are new. We're starting with the premise that what we know by faith is real knowledge, even though we didn't acquire it by scientific or rational or empirical means. It's real knowledge. And what we know by faith is that we've been saved from sin and death by Christ. Or to break it out a little more, we've been saved from sin and death by the incarnation, the crucifixion, and resurrection. So we're people who have the answer before we have the question. We're fallen, confused, sinful people, so we don't know what's wrong with us. But we do know what it took to fix it. So we start with what it took to fix it and work backwards to try to figure out what our predicament is. So if it took the incarnation, the crucifixion, and resurrection, we assume it took all three of those things. They're all interconnected, of course. But what we've done last month, this month, and next month is break them out. Last month we talked about why it took the incarnation, this month the crucifixion, and next month the resurrection. My metaphor for tonight is I'm going to set up reflecting surfaces to throw light on the a crucifixion. Two of them prior to the crucifixion historically, one from Greek antiquity and one from the Old Testament. And then we'll talk about the passion story. And then on the other side of the passion story, the stoning of Stephen. And I hope all three of those little reflecting services will throw some light on the, the meaning of the crucifixion and why it took the crucifixion to save us. This month, there's going to be very little theology. So if you came hoping to be edified. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Tonight will not be terribly edifying. It will be a study in anthropology, a kind of archaeological dig into the ancient world and a look-see at human culture and the human fallen state and so on. Next month when we talk about the resurrection, we'll come back and talk to some extent about the crucifixion again because we'll talk about the descent into hell and the resurrection. So at that point, I hope things are a little more edifying and uplifting. But this month, it's just anthropology. I'm going to start with another T.S. Eliot passage in uh, East Coker, one of the four quartets. And it's really a marvelous passage. I've excerpted it a little bit for the sake of time. And it goes like this. In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, on a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire. So what you have here is a little tableau of the pagan world in a midnight ritual dancing around the bonfire. And it's all quite lovely from where you're standing. That is to say, some distance from it. And it's quite romantic. And Eliot is taking a peek at such a ritual. But of course, he says, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, that's what you see, the weak pipe and the little drum and dancing around the bonfire. The word bonfire uh, comes from the word bone fire. And it was a pagan ritual at which the bones of animals were burned to ward off evil spirits. I have no doubt whatsoever that it goes back further than that to a time when the bones that were burned were human bones 
and they were burned in order to destroy the evidence. And if you want to destroy the evidence of bones, you can't burn them in the campfire because it's not hot enough. They will survive the campfire. You have to burn them in a bonfire. Uh, so that's where the name bonfire came from. It was a bonfire. Where are you doing some archaeological digging, see, to come up with that? Then Elliot goes on. You see them dancing, weak pipe, little drum, dancing around the bonfire, keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing, as in their living in the living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of the milking and the time of harvest, the time of the coupling of man and woman and that of beast. What Eliot is doing is that he's zooming in on it. He's already told us if you do not come too close, it's charming and lovely and romantic and bucolic and so on. And then he slowly closes in on it. And as he does, you see the living and the living seasons and the time of the seasons and the constellations and then the milking and the time of harvest. It's obviously a fertility ritual. And the time of the coupling of man and woman. Coupling is a term that's not very far from a sort of mammalian operation, you see. The time of the coupling of man and woman and that of beasts. Feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, dung and death. So we came too close. He says dung and death. He could have said sex and death, like Freud, Eros and Thanatos, because these things are connected in that fertility ritual that he's roughly describing. And the stories I want to tell you tonight are stories told by people who themselves came too close. The Baki by Euripides would be the first one. And an Old Testament story from the book of Numbers. And then the Passion story. And then the stoning of Stephen, as I said earlier. Now, Plato and Aristotle both were wary of what the Greek tragedians were doing on stage fearing that they were coming too close to something. Aristotle was afraid that the Athenians would be scandalized by the violence of the gods and engage in violence themselves. Plato feared that the Athenians would become disgusted by the venality of the gods and the pettiness of the gods and lose their piety. René Girard also came too close in doing his anthropological researches. And he said... In an interview he did not too terribly long ago, quote, I believe that ritual necessarily imitates an event which actually occurred. In its narrative, myth necessarily distorts that same event, but in such a way that the principle of the distortion can be discovered. So myth tells us about what happened in this event, but you can't trust it. It doesn't allow us to come close enough to see what actually happened. So Sherrod says the the principle of that distortion can be discovered. He himself, René Girard himself, began with the Greek tragedians, and so shall we, because we will look at the Bacchae of Euripides. Euripides was one of the last of the great Greek tragedians, living at the close of a great Athenian golden age, and he was describing, I think, in the Bacchae, the onset of a kind of cultural disintegration and it was, in a way, his literary last will and testament. So I'm going to give you a Cliff Notes version of the Cliff Notes version of the Bacchae of Euripides and quote a couple of lines, a few lines from it. And then 
uh, extrapolate from it and talk about its implications for us today. So the story begins with Zeus, who impregnates Simile, the daughter of Cadmus, the king of Thebes. Zeus, as you know, has this thing for mortal women. And so he's always chasing mortal women and impregnating them. And uh, his wife, Hera, is always sick and tired of such behavior. And in this case, as in some others, she strikes the mortal woman with a lightning bolt. But just in time, Zeus snatches the child from her womb and incubates it himself. And then this godling is born and comes to maturity, although you really can't say he comes to maturity. The godling's name is Dionysus, who never really comes to maturity. That's the point. Dionysus remains a kind of clockwork orange adolescent. But he comes back to Thebes in order to take vengeance, and he presents himself as a great liberator. He's a fertility god. He's the original metrosexual male, sexually undifferentiated and self-absorbed. And he comes with a great entourage of worshipers who are very ecstatic. They drink wine, they go into the woods, and they uh, cavort and have orgies and all kinds of things. And he announces uh, the great time of liberation, about which we could say this. The sexual revolution, which Dionysus always brings that in the first instance, the sexual revolution begins with a gay and celebratory lightheartedness, however contrived and labored it very quickly becomes. The adoption of the word gay as a synonym for the homosexual lifestyle couldn't be more telling in this respect, but the lighthearted revolution gradually devolves into a resentful hard-heartedness directed toward the institutions and the representatives of the moral order, however self-righteous and anthropologically naive they might be. The representative of the moral order in the Baki is Pentheus, who is both morally self-righteous and anthropologically naive. But at least he's trying to hold the world together. But he vastly underestimates the forces that he is having to encounter. So another little reflection on something which might be called Christian moral anthropology before we get into the play. Sin corrupts relationships. Girard's mimetic theory is theologically indispensable for understanding what it means to say that we are made in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God, a God whose very essence is relationality. But Girard's mimetic theory is likewise indispensable inasmuch as it sheds enormous light on precisely how sin corrupts relationships. We've discussed that earlier, and I won't go into it right now except simply to say that. Uh, in the interest of time tonight, I'll simply say that corrupting relationships and thereby poisoning the well of human solidarity, sin triggers social and psychological reflexes which produce crude facsimiles of relationality and social harmony. However welcome under the circumstances these makeshift substitutes for real relationship might be, they come at a very high moral and spiritual cost. The substitute facsimiles are the products of sex and violence. At the interpersonal level, we have coupling instead of nuptiality. In other words, when our relationships are wounded and corrupted, there's a tendency to reach out and heal them in a way that's viscerally satisfying, but that actually undermines the depth and meaning of real relationships. One of those ways is promiscuous sexual encounter. 
or to use Eliot's term, coupling, as opposed to nuptiality. And another, at the social level, is to join in some kind of communal contagious violence, which unites us very powerfully in a visceral way, but not in any fundamental way. It's the opposite of the gathering that the Holy Spirit brings about. But in a crisis-ridden society, that is to say a society where relationships have been corrupted by sin, there's a tendency to opt for these shortcuts, and the results are unsustainable. Now, I mention this because sexuality comes into play in both of these first two stories. And when we see sexual issues arising in culture, we tend to address them entirely from a moral point of view. And we've talked about this in some of our earlier sessions. But sexuality is the canary in the mine shaft. It's the thing that becomes problematic in the first instance when you begin to have a social crisis. So it's a symptom of something much more than just sexual behavior or sexual morality. It's certainly a moral issue, but at a much deeper and more serious level, it's a symptom of the onset of a cultural crisis of major significance. So law exists to prevent us from corrupting our relationship. It's very simple. If you don't want to corrupt your relationships, there are a few simple rules you should follow. You shouldn't kill or steal or lie or commit adultery or covet your neighbor's goods or bear false witness, so on and so forth. These are basic things. You want to have relationships that remain healthy and don't become sick and injured. That's what you do. So law exists to keep our relationships from being corrupted. But when they become corrupted in any case, these tendencies to resort to these makeshift substitutes for them become more and more appealing. So sexuality is never neutral. It will either be transfigured into something of great depth and meaning, thanks in part to the moral and social codes that constrain the impulse toward immediate gratification, or it will degenerate first into mere mammalian instinct and then into betrayal of nature and eventually into madness and violence. When sex becomes a recreational activity, which is, by the way, what Dionysus is all about, to borrow another phrase from Eliot, it famishes the craving. You never get enough of what you really don't want. Like Mick Jagger, those who resort to this expedient can't get no satisfaction. But in the attempt to satisfy the famished craving, they turn to ever more desperate and ever more socially reckless and psychologically destabilizing experiments. Now, in the Greek tradition, the god who serves as the Pied Piper for this sort of madness is Dionysus. Every healthy culture has set up barriers to forestall or prevent his visitation. But like a virus that lies dormant until the organism is weakened, when a culture begins to exhaust itself, he arrives as he did in Thebes in Euripides' play, and as he has in our culture over the last century, especially beginning in the 60s. Last month, I talked about what I call the Shema responsibilities, which is just the responsibilities of cultural seniors to pass on the traditions of that culture in a healthy and robust way. It's a responsibility that we all have. If we receive these gifts from a healthy culture, it's our responsibility to maintain the health of that culture and pass it on to our children and grandchildren and to go to the trouble it takes to do that. Well, in Thebes, described by Euripides in the Bacchae, there are two elders, Tiresias 
the old prophet, and Cadmus, the old king. And both of them have thrown in with Dionysus. The two elders who should have their heads on their shoulders and be doing something more responsible have caved in and become part of the revolution. Pentheus, early in the play, sees Tiresias. Pentheus says, ye gods, what new marvel have we here? Tiresias, the prophet, all dolled up in spotted skins. Dionysus famously wore leopard skins. And so his followers would deck themselves out in leopard skins, you see. So here's Tiresias, who should be an elder, responsible elder, and, and uh, understand how, how problematic this new revolution is. He's thrown in with it, you see. He has, he has his bell bottoms and his bandana and whatever else. <laughs> He's trying to be one of, the, one of the boys. And then Cadmus walks on stage, and, and uh, Pentheus says, This is your doing, Tiresias using him to launch this new god to the masses. Convenient, isn't it? Give religion a boost and, and prophets grow fat from reading the stars and fire magic. See, Pentheus is incredibly naive. He's trying to hold the ground, you know, morally, but he has no idea what he's up against. And he's entirely naive because he thinks that religion is a racket. So in that way, he's like these secularists today or these people that are writing all these atheist books. They just think religion is a racket. They don't understand that we are religious beings. And if we don't have an edifying religion, we will revert to another one that's far from edifying. But it will have real religious power, not in the sense that we're used to talking about in the Judeo-Christian world, but the kind of religious power that the pagans knew about. Pentheus has no clue that he's dealing with something that powerful. Now, I have a couple of little things just to remind you that this play has not grown old with the years. We still have these Tiresias, Cadmus figures around who throw in with the revolution when it should be their duty to try to stand against it and preserve what is good in culture. This is a story from June 22, 1994 edition of the San Francisco Chronicle. The San Francisco Chronicle, the little paper that time forgot. It is still publishing stuff like this, I have no doubt. Anyway, here's the article. Quote, Tired of hearing only what the Pope has to say about marriage, birth control, and human sexuality? Well, of course you are. How could you not be? You turn on TV, you go from channel to channel, that's all you hear. That's what, what the Pope has to say about marriage, birth control, and human sexuality. After a while, you get sick of it. So anyway, if you're tired of it, Jungian psychologist James Hillman suggests a journey back to those Dionysian days before Catholic popes and Hebrew prophets started telling people what to do with their bodies and their minds. Quote, could it be that the pagan gods are trying to get through to us, Dr. Hillman asked? I have no doubt that they are. <laughs> Quote, Hillman, the former director of the Zurich Jung Institute, plans to revive the sex and love gospel of Hera, it's funny you used the word gospel there, the sex and love gospel of Hera, Venus, and Aphrodite Saturday at an all-day symposium in Berkeley. Quoting Dr. Hillman, these instincts belong to the goddesses and gods that the Hebrew world and then the Christian world were opposing in the pagan Mediterranean, Ishtar, Aphrodite, and Venus. These were the gods and goddesses of the sexual life. 
I wonder if anybody at the symposium asked Dr. Hillman if he really believed these goddesses ever existed. Surely nobody would be so impudent as to raise that issue. Dr. Hillman's first lecture was entitled, Why is Hera called Queen of Heaven? You Catholics didn't know that, did you? <laughs> you thought it was somebody else. His second lecture was on the benefits of pornography. 1994, San Francisco Chronicle. 30 years before Dr. Hillman got on the bandwagon, right as it was going into the ditch, Norman O. Brown was very prescient in this regard. And in 1960, he gave a Phi Beta Kappa speech. I was caught up in the 60s myself. I remember copies of this speech circulating in the 60s and 70s. He says, it is possible to be mad and to be unblessed, but it is not possible to get the blessing without the madness. It is not possible to get the illumination without the derangement. Derangement is disorder. The Dionysian faith is that order as we know it is crippling and for cripples, and that human history goes from man to superman. Well, that's what it looks like from a distance, from the Zurich Institute, or from the University of California at Santa Cruz, it all seems exhilarating, the kind of exhilaration for which Western intellectuals have a peculiar vulnerability. In any event, Eliot said, what you see from the distance is weak pipes and little drums. But when Dionysus shows up and you see him up close, it's not weak pipes and little drums. It's the dithyrambic beat. He comes with a rock band as a backup, and it's powerful music. It starts with the pipes, the pipes are all lovely. It seems like it's liberation, but then the drums come in. And one of the translators of the Bakke, Donald Sutherland, had a commentary on the Bakke. By the way, he published this in 1968, so he was at a place in our history when maybe he could see the parallels. He says, in a sense, these two instruments, the pipes and the drums, may be the stylistic key to the play. The pipes are the flutes give you this idea that this is all lovely and liberating and all that. But at a certain point, the mood changes and the drums come in and those drums unite you in a way that your heart starts to beat in rhythm with them. And pretty soon you're in a crowd doing things that are the kind of things that crowds do when they all get of one mind. And if you think I'm making it up, but take a look at what Euripides says. The chorus, beginning the play, sings this song, which sounds like the pipes, really. O thieves, burst into greenness, take up the Bacchanalian beat, touch God in a fit of sanctified frenzy, then all at once the whole land will dance. Just sounds so fantastic. The whole land will dance. Rene Girard says, ancient people regarded ritual dancing as the most mimetic of all arts. It solidified the participants of a sacrifice against the soon-to-be-immolated victim. The whole land will dance. A very few lines later, this. How sweet to the body when breaking loose of the mountain revels you collapse to the ground in a fawn skin after hunting the goat. How sweet the kill, the fresh-smelling blood, the sacramental relishing of raw flesh. So you get the pipes and the drums right there in that one chorus. Many of the Thebans go off chasing the new god, especially the women. So the women of Thebes are called now the menads, which means the raving ones. They've just gone off and they're romping in the woods and having these wild orgies and so on. Well, this is part of the ritual. The fertility ritual, that was part of it. The first part of the ritual was precisely the abandoning of all sexual mores. 
and a kind of orgiastic preliminary to what then became a sacrifice. Pentheus has decided to put his foot down. He has the priest of the cult arrested and interrogates him. He does not realize it's actually Dionysus himself. He interrogates him and throws him into prison. As the prison door shuts, an earthquake happens and the palace falls to the ground, indicating that Dionysus has come to play for keeps. The Dionysian revelers go on a rampage. They destroy villages. The agents of moral order are routed at every turn. Pentheus is determined still to stamp it out. So Dionysus disguises himself as a mortal and goes to see Pentheus. And he says, you should maybe spy on those menads out there in the woods. Wouldn't you like to know what they're doing out there in the woods? <laughs> and of course, Pentheus is just enough of a voyeur to like to go see. So he says, yeah, I should spy on them, shouldn't I, probably? And Dionysus says, well, you have to dress as a woman. He says, well, okay, I'll dress. There's a, there's a lot of gender bending in this play. It's another symptom of the crisis, really. And so he goes out, and it turns out Pentheus can't quite see what these revelers are doing. And he says to Dionysus, he doesn't know it's Dionysus, I can't quite see. He says, don't worry. He bends down a pine tree, and he ties Pentheus to the pine tree, and then he lets it come back up. And now everybody can see Pentheus. He's the observed of all observers, as someone said about Hamlet. So at that point, Dionysus leaves. He whistles to the menad. He says, there's the one who's trying to destroy our cult. And they rush on him, led by Agave, his mother. And they tear him from the tree and tear him from limb to limb. Dionysus leaves saying, I am a god, and when insulted, gods do not forgive. Bear that in mind. Agave then carries the head of her son back into Thebes, proud that she has destroyed this monster. She goes up to Cadmus, the old king, her father and the grandfather of the man whose head she's carrying, and she says, look, I've killed the monster. And Cadmus has to get her to recover her senses. Literally, she has eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. The question that's behind a lot of what I'm saying is, how do we acquire these eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear? This story is about someone who was able to tear her own child apart without realizing what she was doing. Cadmus finally says to her, it was you, you and your sisters, you were driven mad. The whole town was possessed. And here's the clincher. When guilty people are struck mad, their madness knows no guilt. When guilty people are struck mad, their madness knows no guilt. Agave and Cadmus are exiled, and as they leave, like Adam and Eve leaving the garden, Agave looks over her shoulder and says, Farewell, my home. Farewell, my city. I leave for exile. Let those who wish be Baki after me. And that's, I think, Euripides' signature on this play. He wrote this play when he was over 70 years old. He died a couple of years later. It was his final testimony to what he saw happening at the end of the Athenian Golden Age. Now, when it comes to mothers killing their children without fully realizing what they're doing, I was not going to belabor the obvious. I have, I, I think I've mentioned abortion in almost every talk I've made, and I thought, this month I'm going to give it a rest, you know. But two hours before the first session of the month in Wheaton, Illinois, an Associated Press story popped up on the Internet. And there was one sentence in that story that was such an unbelievable echo of the last scene of the Baki that it would be irresponsible of me not to quote it to you. 
So here's the story. 18 and pregnant, a young woman went to an abortion clinic outside Miami and paid $1,200 to terminate her 23-week pregnancy. Three days later, the young woman sat in a reclining chair, medicated to dilate her cervix and otherwise get ready for the procedure. Except the abortionist did not arrive on time. The young woman went into labor and gave birth to a live baby girl. One of the clinic owners came in, knocked the baby off the recliner chair onto the floor, scooped up the baby, the placenta, and the afterbirth into a red plastic biohazard bag and threw it out. This is precisely, of course, what was envisioned by Hadley Arcus and the people that worked so long and hard to pass the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. So a criminal investigation was launched. The woman filed a lawsuit, and here's the line that I felt obliged to quote to you. The attorney who filed a lawsuit for the woman explained her change of heart in these words. She came face to face with a human being, and that changed everything. Precisely what happened to Agave. She finally was able to look into the face and realize that is my son. Now, one final footnote on that. If the abortionist had arrived five minutes earlier, the result would have been exactly the same. But there would have been no criminal investigation, no lawsuit, no associated press story, nothing that might reveal the truth about this otherwise routine procedure. Suddenly it's a crime scene. Had somebody come in five minutes earlier, it would not have been a crime scene. Now it's a crime scene. Somehow we got too close. If you do not come too close, you can think it's a procedure. Well, it turns out that Rene Girard says to us that culture itself begins at a crime scene. He says, quote, forensic anthropology is a scientific discipline that helps in the reconstructing of the scene of the crime. And in order to account for the scapegoat mechanism, one has to resort to a sort of detective work because everybody is lying and no one is aware of it. When guilty people are struck mad, their madness knows no guilt. It's the same thing, exactly. Everybody is lying and no one is aware of it. So one needs forensic anthropology. So I'm going to use some forensic anthropology. This is not going to be edifying. This is an Old Testament story. As you probably know, not all Old Testament stories are edifying. But I'm going to make this one even less edifying than it ordinarily is by digging at it a little bit. But it's such a precious story for helping us understand what human history is about and how profound the biblical revelation is. It's the story of Phineas in chapter 25 of the book of Numbers. And it begins with a social crisis, not that dissimilar from the crisis that Euripides is describing in the Bakke. And it has a very distinct sexual element to it. The story begins with the following. The people, the Israelite people, gave themselves over to debauchery with the daughters of Moab. They, the Israelites, went to their sacrifices, the sacrifices to the Moabite God, and ate and bowed down before the Moabite God. The Moabite God was Baal, a fertility God. The Moabite fertility ritual was like all these other fertility rituals that had all, all the sexual activity, which was very appealing to people that are looking for an alternative religious experience. <laughs> So uh, you can understand the drift. But again, the point is that sexuality is the canary in the mind shaft. When you see something like this, you could say, well, yeah, there's a moral problem, of course, and so on. But ultimately, it's a symptom of a profound cultural crisis. And it's usually among the first symptoms. 
because a cultural crisis emerges when the wherewithal to keep the social order harmonious begins to break down and acrimony develops, relationships are imperiled and corrupted, and the resort to these cheap substitutes for real relationality becomes very attractive. Well, the text says, Yahweh's anger was kindled against Israel for this apostasy. The Lord said to Moses, now the Lord is going to tell Moses how to fix the situation. The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people, for the sake of conversation, let's assume we're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, we have 12 leaders of the tribes. Take all the chiefs of the people and impale them in the sun before the Lord. That'll fix it. Take the chiefs of the people and kill them in front of everybody so that the fierce wrath of Yahweh will be turned away from the sons of Israel. What? There's not a hint in this story that any of these leaders of the tribes of Israel have participated in the apostasy. They're selected because of their prestige, not because of their apostasy. There's no hint that they're apostates. This story, by the way, is very much like the Abraham and Isaac story. At the very beginning, you get the most morally problematic manifestation of the old sacrificial system. In the Abraham story, you get, take your son up and sacrifice him. It's your firstborn. That's the way the world works. You sacrifice your firstborn. But when Abraham gets up there, he hears God calling him to do something else, to sacrifice a ram instead. There's a move away from it. And we've talked about that. This is similar to that. You get this stark recipe for fixing the situation at first. And how could that possibly fix the situation? When these texts talk about wrath, they're talking about violence, of course. Violence is going to break out. There's going to be violence. But how exactly would it solve the problem if you killed the whole top tier of Israelite leadership? How's that going to solve the problem? Well, if you think anthropologically, it actually makes sense. As I've said in earlier sessions, in the center of all archaic societies is a religion. At the center of the religion is an altar of blood sacrifice, where victims are killed ritually at the climax of a very intense ritualized event. Now, the power of that ritual has to do with its cathartic effects. Catharsis is an event that is so god-awful, so shocking, that it purges everybody of all of their passions, their animosities, their frictions. It's an event that, is, that just drains away all the ordinary frictions and resentments and animosities of life. As I've said before, it's like watching the plane fly into the second tower on 9-11. You see that and all those issues that were troubling you and all those relational problems, none of that matters. So you're at one with everybody you meet in the face of that. That's catharsis. And these rituals were designed to regularly provide a cathartic resolution for the whole community, binding the community together and purging everybody of their social aggravation. And it has a gravitational power on people. It brings people together. And if you see people beginning to drift away, and here they're going over to the Moabite ritual, you know as an amateur anthropologist that the cathartic power of that ritual is waning. And the obvious thing to do is to recharge the cathartic quotient. And the question is, how do you do that? There are only two ways to do it. One is to sacrifice more and more victims, and the other is to sacrifice more prestigious victims. And of the two, the latter is more likely to work.
because we know that the sudden shocking death of a prestigious victim has enormous cathartic power. When John Kennedy is killed, Martin Luther King, when Princess Diana is killed in the tunnel, the whole world experiences a little catharsis, you see. So when Yahweh says, kill the 12 leaders, it would in fact have been a cathartic event. There would be no drifting away from something that powerful. You see what I mean? So it makes sense in terms of the old sacrificial system. Moses then said to the judges of Israel, now what he's supposed to say to them is come on up here in the sun and get ready to meet your maker. Moses says to the judges of Israel, each of you shall kill any of your people who have bowed down before the pagan god. Isn't that interesting? He does not do what Yahweh asked him to do. So, who's with Yahweh on this and who's with Moses? What is Moses doing? Moses knows that there's going to be violence. Moses has decided that if there's going to be violence and there's no nonviolent alternative to this crisis, it's a very big crisis, the violence should fall on the people who committed the apostasy. He wants to move in the direction of justice. The old system doesn't have the luxury of hoping for justice. It's a sacrificial system. And it's efficacious. It's very powerful. It works. It's better that 12 should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed, to paraphrase Caiaphas. You see what I mean? But Moses is moving away. Let it be the people who actually committed the apostasy. Fine. Here's the problem. A whole lot more than 12 of them did. So as soon as you move away from the old sacrificial system, you abandon its economy. The old sacrificial system was very economical. It took one death and it intensified that death so that when that death occurred, enough catharsis was generated to bind the community together. So it was the ancient world's violence reduction mechanism, as we've said here before. If you abandon it, you abandon the economy of that mechanism. So when Moses sends these people out to kill the apostates, there are a whole lot more than 12 of them, and they're not going to take it sitting down. They're going to fight back. So we're right on the threshold of a civil war. And as a matter of fact, the text suggests to us that a civil war actually broke out. So this is the real history and real crisis. Martin Buber says these texts were not born at the writing desk. So the stage is set for a total crisis. Then it says, just then, a man of the sons of Israel came along bringing the Midianite woman into his family under the eyes of Moses and the whole community of the sons of Israel as they wept at the tent of meeting. Tremendously bad timing. At the very moment when the whole community of the sons of Israel is gathered at the tent of meeting, this text says weeping. They weren't weeping, they were wailing. They were in a religious frenzy, you see? very much like the Menads in the woods. Now, there's a big difference between Israelites and the Menads in the woods, but in this case, this religious frenzy was at a peak. At exactly the wrong time to walk by with your Moabite sweetie on your arm. Now, when he saw this, Phineas, the priest, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, so he's got a tremendous pedigree. Phineas, the priest, knows what priests have to do when it's time for priests to do what priests have to do. Phineas, the priest, stood up, left the assembly, seized the lance, followed the Israelite into the alcove, and there ran them both through, right through the groin, apparently with one thrust. So he caught them in the act. Now, typically to catch people in the act, you have to do some reconnaissance. So 
there's some suspicions that arise here as to how spontaneous this whole thing was, and we'll return to those suspicions in a minute. But then it said, at that moment, the plague, the what? <laughs> There's been no mention of plague. Where'd that come from? At that moment, the plague that had struck the sons of Israel was arrested. And in the plague, 24,000 had died. This is amazing. This is precious, really. These terms like plague and curse and incest, these terms come up in the aftermath of a spontaneous event that has cathartic power. Suddenly, all the animosity is gone. Suddenly, the crisis is over. There's a bonding, binding effect of this event, and nobody can figure it out. And so people grab for these terms to try to explain how that madness that was upon us just a minute ago is gone, and now everything is fine. So the, the ancients would come up with these terms ex post facto in order to try to account for what had just happened to them. This is a perfect example of that. Suddenly, when it's resolved by a, a sudden killing, they reach for this term, and now we find out there's been a plague. And 24,000, so that probably indicates that there really was a civil war. Next verse says, Yahweh spoke to Moses. Now you think, oh, he's going to take him to the woodshed because he told him to do one thing, he did something else. Yahweh says to Moses, Phineas the priest, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, his pedigree is rehearsed again, has turned my wrath away from the sons of Israel. And in reward for his zeal, he shall now have the right to perform ritual atonement over the sons of Israel. What is ritual atonement over the sons of Israel? It's Leviticus 16, the scapegoat ritual. What you have here is a link between a spontaneous murder and the development derivative of that murder of a ritual, which is the ritual reenactment of that event. In the event itself, you have two victims. One's an insider, one's an outsider, a Moabite woman, an Israelite man. In the Leviticus 16 ritual, you have two goats. One's killed and one's sent out into the desert. So you have this structural similarity between these two things and a textual reference to the connection between them. Because Phineas the priest understood what had to happen there, he has the savvy, the wherewithal, to be the kind of priest that we need to do this. And to do what? To take away the sins of the people. To draw all of that sinfulness out of the system by venting it all on one, or in this case two, figures to drain all those passions, all of that fear, all of that anxiety, all of that violence, all of that sinfulness out of the system by venting it in one direction. Now, had Phineas not taken the steps he took, the wailing Israelite community would have behaved as did the raving menads on Mount Sithron. The Israelite man and the Moabite woman would have been torn limb from limb by the mob. In other words, to echo what I said about the Florida infanticide story, the result would have been exactly the same, except that the killing would have been too ritually and therefore too morally unofficial to become the basis of a sustained social harmony. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Had Phineas not taken the step he took, the mob would have turned on those two and done the same thing. Phineas stepped out in front of the crowd and took charge of it 
and executed what Rousseau called the general will on their behalf and saved it from becoming a mob murder. Acting on behalf of the crowd, Phineas did his best to turn the deaths of the Israelite man and the Moabite woman into the ancient equivalent of a routine procedure. Phineas performed the priestly task by which the ancient world moved from reciprocal violence, 24,000 of them died, or mob violence, like the dismemberment of Pentheus, towards sacrificial rituals, which in the fullness of time evolved into judicial institutions. In one paragraph, I just summed up <laughs> a book or two of René Girard's. But if you bring an anthropological curiosity to these texts, you can see real history being made here. It's not history that's edifying except to appreciate that things are moving in a certain direction. And in the ancient world, what matters is what direction things are moving in. If you go back and you try to fit everything into some Procrustean moral prescription, you'll be sorely disappointed. Now, what you have to see is how things are moving. Now, what Phineas did worked. The crisis is over. The killing has stopped. The community has been brought together. The apostasy is over. So it worked. The mythological or pagan response to such an event is to let well enough alone. Don't ask too many questions. Don't come too close. But the biblical impulse is to get to the truth. And if you can't get to the truth, leave evidence of where it's hidden. That's the biblical thing. So in the Bible, if the authors of the text are not getting at the truth, they're intentionally or unintentionally leaving evidence that will lead us to it in the end. Jesus says, everything will be revealed. So the story that I just talked about has a little postscript, and it's this. The name of the slain Israelite man and anybody in his right mind in the ancient world would have said, whoa, stop. Don't get into names. <laughs> this thing worked. Just refer to the apostate or to the monster or to the madman. You see what I mean? But don't get into biography. You're going to come too close. And if you come too close, it'll all fall apart because you'll see what actually happened. You see? But here you have it. The name of the slain Israelite man who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, head of an ancestral house belonging to the Simeonite. And the name of the Midianite woman, oh my gosh, even the Midianite woman, was Cosby, daughter of Zur, who was the head of a clan of an ancestral house of Midian. Way too much biographical detail. You see what I mean? You're coming too close. Because if you come too close, it's personalized. It's like that young woman who... Her attorney said she looked and saw a human face and that made all the difference, you see. You don't want to have a human face there. And suddenly you have way too much of that here. That's the Bible at work. That's the Bible wrestling with this other impulse, which is to go back to the old sacred system and mythologize it all. But the biblical God has hold of the people of Israel and he is bringing them through to look at that truth and they leave this last little piece of it. Now, what does that piece of information tell us? It tells us that, in fact, they were important people in Midian and in Israel. And then you begin to think, well, wait a minute. Now let's go back to that 
apparently coincidental event when the people were wailing at the tent of meeting. And the question really is, how much choreography went into this? I present that to you not to take anything away from the Old Testament, but to show that it's the story of a real struggle, what Gerard calls a text in travail. We are being dragged out of our tendency to revert to the default position, which is always to go back to this thing of venting the sins of the people on some convenient outlet, some scapegoat, some subculture, some historical enemy, and so on, to purge ourselves of our sinfulness. And this simply shows that the Old Testament is a story of that two steps forward and one step back. If we come to the New Testament, we have a much more refined diagnostic in the New Testament. There are two names for the demonic in the New Testament, the devil and Satan. The diabolos is someone who throws something across and causes division. So the business of the devil is to cause social division, disunity, acrimony, dissent, conflict, and to stir it, to scandalize people with all this conflict, like stirring a boiling pot until it boils. And when it boils, the diabolos becomes Satan. Satan means the accuser. Everybody's feeling accusatory. Somebody comes along and points the accusatory finger in a convincing way and everybody buys it. And suddenly there's a polarization. And that polarization vents all of that animosity in one direction and creates unity. And that unity is a community which is simply one of the kingdoms of this world over which Satan has power because he brought it into being that way. It's yet another of the kingdoms of this world. The world has a way of taking away the sins of the world. That is to say, to blame it all on somebody and vent it. Now, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a singular. What is the sin of the world? The sin of the world is precisely this mechanism for taking away the sins of the world on the cheap by blaming it on a scapegoat. That's the sin of the world. That's the sin that creates the kingdoms of this world. That's the burden of René Girard's whole anthropology. That's where culture comes from. Culture comes out of that experience of taking all of that madness and venting it one direction and creating a harmonious community as a result. So the sin of the world is the cheap little trick for taking away the sins of the world on the cheap. Christ came to destroy the sin of the world, to take away the sin of the world, so that we would come to our senses like agave and recognize what we have done, to look on him whom we have pierced. He came to die. He came to die. He came to die like that. So why did it take the cross to save us? Why couldn't he have died of leprosy to save us? That's not what we had to be saved from. We had to be saved from this. This mechanism is the mechanism that creates all idolatry. He had to break the power of it. So there he is. If you and I had been there looking out at that mob that was angry with Jesus, what you and I would have seen would have been ravenous wolves and what Jesus saw was lost sheep. And so, pardon the Monty Python version here, he said, you probably wonder why I call this meeting. Hold still. I've got you just where I want you. Now, this will only take a second. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They know not what they do. Because when that madness swirls into a vortex, it's like a black hole. 
people go into that and they have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. They come out able to carry the head of their own kinsman thinking it's a monster. You see what I mean? It's madness in that black hole. But the prologue to the Gospel of John says the light shone into the darkness and the darkness could not quench it. A black hole is so gravitationally powerful it draws all light into it. But here light comes out. And it comes out because forgiveness is first. Jesus could have sat there and said, well, I'm going to forgive these people as soon as they ask me for forgiveness. He'd still be waiting. You see, none of us can really allow ourselves to recognize how complicit we are and how much we need mercy until we know it's on offer. And it's that way in human relationships. If you're having an argument with somebody you love, it's hard for you to say you're sorry until you know there's going to be forgiveness there. The forgiveness comes first and makes the contrition possible. This is the mystery of Christian conversion, really. Dionysus said, I am a God, and when insulted, gods do not forgive. And Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Relationships are repaired by forgiveness, but we can't feel the contrition that we need to feel until we know forgiveness is available. So forgiveness comes first. The New Testament word for truth is aletheia, which means to stop forgetting. Lethe is the river of forgetfulness. In the ancient pagan world, if you had one of these rituals that worked, you ran for the river of Lethe and gulped some down. You see, forget it. Don't look back. But the word for truth in the New Testament is aletheia, which is stop forgetting. What are you forgetting? All of that stuff, all of the need that I have, the, you know, my complicity and all of that. How fallen and needy I am. You can't feel it until that forgiveness is there. And you hear the cock crow. And it's a huge relief to hear the cock crow, even though Peter wept bitterly. It's a huge relief because it's true. My sacrifice is a contrite heart. Ah, man, that sums up the whole thing. We're still in the sacrificial world. We'll always be in the sacrificial world. The old pagan world of sacrifice, which was scapegoating and all of that, was simply the crude, clumsy anticipation of the sacrificial world in which we live. But our sacrifice is a contrite heart. But you can't have a contrite heart until you know forgiveness is on offer. Now, I said that the light shone into the darkness and darkness could not quench it. What explodes out of that black hole? What came out of that black hole that had never come out before? Truth. And the one piece of truth you cannot be exposed to and still enjoy the social benefits of this mechanism is the innocence of the victim this mechanism only works because you believe this person, these people deserve this violence. But if you see the innocence of the victim, the game is up. Redemption is like creation, you know. Creation, the physicist tell us, begins with the Big Bang and we're still reeling from the Big Bang, astrophysically speaking. But redemption is the same thing. When Jesus breathes his last, there is an explosion. An explosion that blasts out from the cross and we're still reeling from it. And it's sweeping through history and through the natural order into the cosmos itself. 
changing everything. Everything is being redeemed and it blows out from that event. And the first poor, unsuspecting character that it hit was the centurion. He had no preparation for it. He was the last person in the world who was prepared to understand it. He was a Roman soldier. By Jewish standards, he's a total idiot. He had never read Jeremiah, 2nd Isaiah, the psalmist, any of that. And not only is he a Roman soldier who salutes every day and knows that Rome only does this to people who deserve it, but he's on crucifixion duty. This is not a guy with a whole lot of sympathies. You see what I mean? He doesn't have the transcript of the trial. Suddenly, when the centurion saw what had happened, Luke uses this word theoria. It doesn't mean see with your eyes. It means he suddenly comprehended it. When he saw what had happened, he gave praise to God and said, truly, this is an innocent man. He just happened to be in the way of the blast. You see what I mean? And he staggers back and says, this is an innocent man. How could he know that? It says he gave praise to God and said this is an innocent man. In other words, he knows that it's not because of any moral ability of his own that he's been able to see this innocent. It's because it's a revelation. It's been revealed to him. The power of this scapegoating mechanism is awesome, so awesome that it's capable of obscuring the most perfect mere human innocence the mob could instantly be convinced that Mother Teresa is a witch and lynch her. No problems, you see. It required ontological innocence in the first instance. Jesus is like us in all things but sin. He is ontologically innocent, not morally innocent, but ontologically innocent. It took that kind of innocence to break the power of this idolatrous mechanism in the first instance. It literally required the incarnation. Right after the centurion passage, the next verse is, when all the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle, and this is the gathering spectacle, this is the spectacle which is supposed to gather everybody together. In the book of Numbers, it was the spectacle, the killing of the Israelite and the Moabite. It was the spectacle that ended all the problems and made everybody happy. Luke says, when all the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle saw what had happened, and he uses the same verb, saw, which means to comprehend. They threw their hats in the air, had a ticker tape parade, and went home singing the national anthem. No, that's not what it says. But that's the way it's supposed to end, because it's the gathering spectacle. The spectacle that bonds everybody together, allows everybody to vent all their animosity on this figure, go home happy. It doesn't say that. It says they turned around and went home, all in a different direction, beating their breasts, which means confusion. It doesn't mean conversion. That is the event that should have created a culture and it destroyed one. It was the same procedure that we have been procedure that we have been using since the beginning of culture itself and suddenly it backfired in the most dramatic way. Instead of bonding, everybody drifted in in all directions. It's the beginning of the end of conventional culture. The church is the beginning of the beginning of a new culture. But at the moment that those people turned around and went home beating their breasts, it's the beginning of the end of conventional culture. And church is the enormously important anthropological experiment in another kind of gathering.
Jesus says, if you do not gather with me, you will be scattered. And the implication of that is, the reason you'll be scattered is because I am shoving a stick into the spokes of your gathering mechanism. And it's not going to work anymore. And every attempt to put it back together again, and we've been attempting to put it back together again for the last 2,000 years, and we do. It lasts a little while. Gerard says it's a non-renewable resource. Once it's broken and exposed the way it is on Golgotha, every time you resort to it, you diminish its power the next time. So it becomes weaker and weaker and weaker through uh, history. After the revelation, the first martyr is Stephen. And Stephen's doing what we're all commanded by Christ to do. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the truth of the cross to the Sanhedrin. So this little scene is a scene of someone proclaiming the gospel and the world trying to fend it off. That's what the world does. The world tries to ward off the gospel and we try to preach it. So Stephen says to them, you stubborn people, you have pagan hearts and pagan ears. Uncircumcised hearts and ears. It means you have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gathers in an entirely different way. The Holy Spirit gathers in a quiet, powerful, deep, and meaningful way. Not this cathartic gathering that you get with these stories that I've been telling you. You see. He says, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Can you name a single prophet your ancestors have not persecuted? There you have it. He says, you're always resorting to that same mechanism. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at him. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be in the presence of people that hate you without forgetting that they're brothers and sisters of yours. In other words, you remain in communion with them even though... They despise you. That is to be in the Holy Spirit. And Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks up and sees heaven open and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, he's trying to actually convert them. Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout rushed at him. This is so important. This is this sort of artificial forgetfulness. The word for truth in the New Testament is aletheia, stop forgetting. These people have just had the gospel preached to them. It's too late. They've come too close. They've just heard it. Can you name a single prophet your ancestors have not persecuted? They've gotten enough of the gospel so that there's no going back. And so what they have to do is cover their ears to try to keep it out. And I always conflate this scene with Jesus at the cross. And I can imagine Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, except for those two guys in the back with their hands over their ears. Because they're complicit in their ignorance. Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse. So the question is, will this contrived forgetfulness work? The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul, who approved the stoning, by the way. Stephen then prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, this is very interesting. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It doesn't say he prayed out loud. He prayed to himself. He mumbled it. doesn't say, well, we say, well, he, he must have said it out loud because Luke knew about it. Well, who knows how that happened. The point is, there's no indication of how he said it. But the next thing it tells us is two things that are hard to miss. One, he knelt down. Can't miss that. And secondly, he cried out in a loud voice. Now, God's not hard of hearing. He cried out in a loud voice because 
He still has his persecutors in mind. He's still filled with the Holy Spirit, which means he still relates to his own persecutors as his brothers and sisters, and he's trying to leave them something to go on. He's trying to do what Jesus did at the cross to pray forgiveness, to show them that forgiveness is on offer here. And they need to hear it from the person they're about to kill. If they hear it from the person they're about to kill, sooner or later the nickel will drop. Saul approved the stoning. And the next we hear of Saul, he's on the road to Damascus and the nickel drops. And as I look at it, had Stephen not prayed forgiveness on them in Saul's presence, the conversion on the road to Damascus would not have occurred. And without Paul, where would we be? Huh? So we owed Stephen a debt of gratitude for doing what Christ did at the cross, putting forgiveness on the table, remaining in koinonia, in communion with the very people who were killing him. And we're supposed to be able to do that. It takes a little practice, I'm sure. I want to say something about structural innocence, but in order to introduce it, let me make a very quick allusion to a passage in the book of Revelation. John of Patmos is on the island, penal island of Patmos, and he has this vision of a heavenly liturgy, and he sees a great multitude, no one can count, from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, which means innocent, with palm branches in their hands, which means victory. And the elder says to him, who are these robed in white? And John says, I don't know, you tell me. And the elder says, these are those who've come through the great ordeal. And exegetes immediately say, great ordeals, the persecution of the Christians in the late first century. Well, yes, of course. But John of Patmos is not writing a footnote to a historical event. He's writing about the nature of history itself. And these are people from all nations, all tribes, all languages, you could say all times. And they're robed in white and they have palm branches. Who are they? The question is still there. These are those who come through the great ordeal. They're all the victims. They're all the victims that people have persecuted in that way in which Christ was persecuted and the prophets were persecuted. They are those who have died at the hands of their community. And their communities didn't see white robes. Their communities saw, you know, wretched, terrible criminals, and all, whatever it is, monsters. So... John sees white robes. And how does he see white robes? This goes back to the centurion. Is it because he's super moral? Super sympathetic? No. He sees white robes because the elder tells him their robes have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. You're able to see the innocence of these victims because Christ revealed it decisively. And after that, you look around, you see it everywhere. After you see that decisive breakthrough where the mob even though it's unanimous is wrong and the victim is innocent and once that breaks open you see the innocence of the victim everywhere now the little nuance to add is when someone is scapegoated they enjoy a structural innocence because of the structure of that event the person who's being attacked by the unanimous mob is in the place of Christ. And our job as Christians is to be in that place with them, physically or in a representative way. They're structurally innocent. 
But they may have gotten themselves in that fix by doing something we don't approve of. But if we don't introduce this nuance of the difference between juridical innocence or moral innocence and structural innocence, we get very confused because we think, well, if somebody is in that situation because they did something that we don't approve of, we have to now start approving of it because they're an innocent victim. But we have to understand they're innocent structurally. If a mob is about to lynch somebody for raping a woman, rape doesn't suddenly become a good thing. But you and I still have to stand with them. You see what I mean? We have to make that distinction. Otherwise, we get into really ridiculous political correctness. But at the same time, we do have to stand with them when the crowd closes in on them. I want to share with you two little quotes from Simone Weil to close. Simone Weil is a French mystic in the middle of the 20th century. It's quite a strange, marvelous woman who died early and wrote some very fascinating things. And there are two little pieces that appear in her writings that I just want to end with and try to explain why I want to end with it. She says, quote, God has provided that when his grace penetrates to the very center of man and from there illuminates all his being, he is able to walk on water without violating any of the laws of nature. Now, water in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, even though Genesis borrowed this from Babylonian creation stories, in Genesis, the waters are the waters of chaos. And God draws creation out of that. So in the biblical symbolism, water is chaos. And chaos is always social chaos. The chaos that most panics us is social chaos. So I think we should read this passage as describing how to be in the presence of social chaos without succumbing to it. God has provided when his grace penetrates to the very center of man and from there illuminates his whole being. He's able to walk on water without violating any of the laws of nature. He's able to walk through a mad crowd and not go mad. Grace makes that possible. But then she says, when a person turns away from God, he simply gives himself over to the law of gravity. He thinks he can decide and choose, but he is only a stone that falls. If we examine human society and souls closely enough and with real attention, we see that wherever the virtue of supernatural light is absent, everything is obedient to mechanical laws as blind and as exact as the laws of gravity. And Simone Weil's great theme, as you know, is the title of her most famous book is Gravity and Grace. There's grace that allows us to walk on water, to be in the presence of social chaos and not get caught up in the madness. And then there's gravity, which just draws us into it. So the effect of conversion and the reception of grace is that we can be in the presence of these things without, without falling into them. I can't speak for you, but I will say for myself, and my guess is a little bit true of all of us, we're not quite there yet. But it is precisely that that keeps us from sliding back into this ancient default position that I've been describing in some of these other stories. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shade lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in his mercy may he give us a safe lodging, a holy rest and peace at last. Amen. 
If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work. Our work.